Michael Behe's criticisms of Darwinism so far have fallen flat. His extrapolations from his first rule of adaptive evolution, break or blunt any gene whose loss would increase the number of offspring, misunderstand natural selection, and confound frequency and importance, to quote biologist Richard Lenski. Gain-of-function mutations don't need to happen the majority of the time in order to proliferate, any more than adaptive mutations need to happen more frequently than maladaptive mutations to proliferate. How consequential something is, and how common it is, are two distinct questions. As Lenski dryly notes, asteroid impacts aren't common either, but the dinosaurs, among other groups, sure felt the impact of one at the end of the Cretaceous. As an analogy, consider the formation of mountains. Large-scale movements of the Earth's tectonic plates are required for mountain formation. Many geological processes, however, are constantly at work, and they don't all conspire to build up mountains. Take erosion. Erosion can, over time, drastically change the landscape, including mountains, and it's far more frequently involved than large-scale, drastic movements of the Earth's crust. Behe is essentially claiming that unless tectonic plates form mountains more often than erosion is at work, erosion would swamp the effect of the tectonic plates and no mountains would ever form, that is, without the intervention of an intelligent designer. The thesis of Behe's book can be summarized in a quote of his from part one. The first rule of adaptive evolution summarizes the fact that the overwhelming tendency of random mutation is to degrade genes, and that very often is helpful. Thus, natural selection itself acts as a powerful de-evolutionary force, increasing helpful broken and degraded genes in the population. End quote. This is the central argument of the book, as Behe said, and as I hope I've explained by now, it's not a good argument. Richard Lenski drove the point home with another useful analogy. Quote, when it comes to the power of natural selection, what is most frequent versus most important can be very different things. What is most important in evolution, and in many other contexts, depends on timescales and the cumulative magnitude of effects. Consider an investor who bought stocks in a hundred different companies 25 years ago, of which 80 have been losers. 20 winners can overcome 80 losers. Imagine if that investor had picked Apple, for example. That single stock has increased in value by well over a hundredfold in that time, more than offsetting even 80 total wipeouts all by itself. In the same vein, even if many more mutations destroy function than produce new functions, the latter category has been far more consequential in the history of life. That is because a new function may enable a lineage to colonize a new habitat or realm, setting off what evolutionary biologists call an adaptive radiation that massively increases not only the number of organisms, but over time, the diversity of species, and even higher taxa. End quote. Since Behe's criticisms don't hold water, in even more ways that we'll get to soon, it can be easy to lose sight of the fact that he's arguing in favor of intelligent design. The design inference is an extra step made after the criticisms of evolution. Making the inference to design from any criticism of Darwinism is an unjustified leap. You can point out gaps in our knowledge, without appealing to magic to fill those gaps. Let's turn to Behe's empirical claim here, that we know most mutations cause a loss of function, and that we know most adaptations cause a loss of function. He focuses on lab experiments to support these claims. Experimental evolution, evolution observed in labs, usually involve bacteria or viruses or fruit flies, and this is extremely valuable. But one wouldn't necessarily be justified in extrapolating conclusions drawn from those experiments to all of evolution in all of nature. 
Jerry Coyne points this out in his analysis of Behe's 2010 paper that the book is based on. Quote, I think that while Behe's summary of the results of these short-term lab experiments is generally accurate, one would be completely off the mark to extend his conclusions to evolution in general, that is, evolution as it has occurred in nature, be it in microbes or eukaryotes. End quote. Further empirical difficulties for Behe are the numerous examples of non-broken genes that increase fitness. To quote Jerry Coyne again, these include the arising of duplicated genes and then the divergence of those genes to perform new functions on top of old ones, a very common mode of adaptation in nature that has created many useful gene families. End quote. Michael Behe knows this and he admits that mutation and natural selection can explain microevolution and maybe a little more than that, but only through the breaking of genes. Something else, he insists, is required for meaningful innovation and increased complexity. For Science Magazine, Nathan Lentz writes, quote, Behe dedicates the better part of Chapter 7 to discussing a 65,000-generation E. coli experiment, emphasizing the many mutations that arose that degraded function, in expected mode of adaptation to a simple laboratory environment, by the way, while dismissing improved functions and deriding one new one as a, quote, sideshow. Behe is skeptical that gene duplication, followed by random mutation and selection, can contribute to evolutionary innovation. Yet there is overwhelming evidence that this underlies trichromatic vision in primates, olfaction in mammals, and developmental innovations through the diversification of Hox genes. And in 2012, Anderson showed that new functions can rapidly evolve in a suitable environment. Behe acknowledges none of these studies, declaring an absence of evidence for the role of duplications in innovation. End quote. The evolutionary biologist Jerry Coyne also provided several counterexamples of mutations increasing fitness without breaking genes, echoing many of Lentz's examples. Quote, Behe ignores the large number of adaptive mutations that do not inactivate genes. These include duplications, in which a gene is accidentally copied twice, with the copies diverging in useful ways. This is how primates acquired our three-color vision, as well as different forms of hemoglobin. Changes not in gene function, but in how and when a gene is turned on and off, like mutations producing lactose tolerance in milk-drinking human populations. There's the repurposing of ancient genes acquired from viruses, one source of the mammalian placenta. Chimeric genes cobbled together from odd bits of DNA, for example genes producing antifreeze proteins in fish blood and simple changes in the DNA sequence that alter proteins without breaking them, for example, tolerance of low oxygen levels in high-flying geese. End quote. So, Coyne and Lentz just gave us examples of genetic mutations that don't break genes, are adaptive, and add function. So, how does Behe deal with these examples that undermine his claims empirically? He accuses the authors of question-begging and merely providing just-so stories which is a spectacular act of projection. He says that in these supposed counterexamples, the authors, quote, simply describe the occurrence of genes. The authors of the articles don't even try to argue, let alone experimentally investigate, that the diversification and integration of the genes into slightly different functions could have occurred through blind Darwinian processes, end quote. It's true that biologists have a high enough credence in their theories that they don't have a creationism versus evolution debate with every single new discovery, which is apparently what Behe wants, just like doctors don't have a debate over the possible demonic causes of miscarriage every time they see a new one. They just assume that it fits into the paradigm they've been working with and making steady progress with, 
and not the paradigm that they had to toss aside to make any of the progress that's been made. I would also argue that our credence in naturalism is high enough generally that we can confidently err on the side of natural laws and processes over unseen minds invisibly controlling the world's events, like we used to believe regarding miscarriage, earthquakes, disease, and like many of us still believe regarding biological complexity. I don't know what evidence be he would possibly be satisfied with. You show him examples in nature and in the lab of gains of function, and he accepts them, but he asserts that an invisible agent must have done it. Biologists have responded with natural accounts of the examples cited, and he has said in multiple responses on Evolution News that they're, quote, too vague, unlike it was a miracle, which is very clear and well-defined. You show him examples, and he wants an explanation. You give him an explanation, and he demands to see examples. Both have been brought to his attention to no avail. We need to separate a few things for clarity. First, there's an empirical claim regarding the tendency of mutations to break genes. Behe can be challenged on the specifics of his claims there, but he really goes off the rails when he says that natural selection is a de-evolutionary force because of the first fact. This comes down to Behe not understanding natural selection and refusing to accept any counterexamples to his claims, which brings us up to where we are now. I should also mention that he goes on from this point to claim that since natural selection can't be the only mechanism, there's probably a designer. And this is even more of a wild extrapolation than his claim that selection is de-evolutionary. Even if natural selection isn't enough, this doesn't mean that the other forces at work couldn't also be physical and natural. It's possible to separate his negative and positive claims, which shouldn't be overlooked. It's quite possible to think that there's more to evolution than random mutation and natural selection while remaining a naturalist. His negative arguments against Darwinism are entirely separable from his positive claims of design. If he's claiming that his opponents are being too vague in their explanations, he may be wrong, but it's not an argument against that charge to point out the extreme vagueness of his own explanation. His model literally involves miracles, and he's upset with the vagueness of others. That's where the miracle intervened. It reminds me of Sidney Harris's famous cartoon, my favorite, uh, where the one scientist writes up there in the st step two, then a miracle occurs, and he says, I think you should be more explicit here in step two. The problem with all creationist argument, and this is probably the most important slide I'll put up tonight, is that it is nothing more than a God of the gaps argument. That is, wherever there's a gap, that must mean that's where the miracle happened. That's where God intervened, or if you're an intelligent designer... All this to say that one could accept every single argument B he makes against Darwinism without buying into design. Such a person would just have to add other natural mechanisms driving evolution. So let's return to the issue at hand, which is his refusal to acknowledge examples of adaptive, gain-of-function mutations that don't break genes as natural phenomena. His problem with the numerous examples provided is that the authors, quote, simply describe the occurrence of genes, arrogantly assuming the explanation for them is something natural rather than the Holy Spirit, and without even trying to prove God's non-existence before discussing their genetics research. This is apparently question-begging, if you ask Michael Behe. I'm just barely joking. Behe does consider it unfair to assume there is a non-miraculous explanation as a default. As for the sufficiency of natural processes to drive evolution, there is literally no evidence we could show him that would change his mind. Even if we somehow showed him the emergence of every new gene, down on the chemical level, over the last few billion years, he still wouldn't be satisfied. 
That's because he doesn't have an issue with evolution itself. He just doesn't think natural processes can account for the emergence of all those genes. So that means we have to give him a naturalistic account of evolution, which has been done. But he'll never be satisfied with any explanation or any evidence, which we'll discuss momentarily. Fundamentally, Behe is driven by his intuition that God is the designer of the biological complexity he observes. Let's say that I had a strong intuitive feeling that the movement of the planets was intelligently guided. I say that unintelligent gravitational fields are not up to the task. It must be an angel driving the planets around. Obviously, I don't have a problem with the fact that the planets are moving. I just don't accept that blind Newtonian processes could ever account for the Earth's orbit around the sun. B. He doesn't have a problem with the fact of evolution, just like I don't have a problem with the motion of the planets. But what evidence could you possibly bring to my attention that could change my mind? If you showed me, in the sharpest possible detail, all the physical processes that conspire to make the planets orbit, it wouldn't change my mind because I don't dispute the movement of the planets. I dispute that unintelligent processes are up to the task of moving the planets on such a perfect path. No empirical data even could be problematic for my angel hypothesis. But what if a proposed naturalistic theory was spectacularly successful in predicting future data? Any naturalistic theory, no matter how successful in making accurate predictions, couldn't be waved away if we're reasoning as Behe does. But why does Behe accuse us of assuming our conclusion when all we're doing is making conjectures and testing them against reality? That's how science works. That's what it does. You build a model that makes predictions and compare it to the data. If the model's predictions are accurate, and it survives other classical measures, like simplicity and parsimony, we gradually accept the model tentatively to be true. But no model is ever proven to be true. Science doesn't do that, and yet that seems to be where Behe is setting the bar. He seems upset that natural selection, or natural processes generally, haven't been positively proven to be the true mechanisms of evolution. But that's not what science is in the business of doing. To quote Richard Feynman, Suppose that you invent a good guess, calculate the consequences, and discover that every consequence that you calculate agrees with experiment. The theory is then right? No, it is simply not proved wrong. Because in the future, there could be a wider range of experiments, you could compute a wider range of, co of consequences, and you may discover then that the thing is wrong. That's why laws like Newton's laws for the motion of planets last such a long time. He guessed the law of gravitation, calculate all the kinds of consequences for the solar system and so on, compared them to experiment, and it took several hundred years before the slight error of the motion of Mercury was developed. During all that time, the theory had been failed to be proved wrong and could be taken to be temporarily right, but it can never be proved right because tomorrow's experiment may succeed in proving what you thought was right wrong. So when you build a model that's successful in predicting data, it's not proven true. It's tentatively accepted as true. We don't claim that it's absolutely true when it's seemingly confirmed by observation. This is why Behe's charges are so baffling. He'll accuse Darwinists of simply assuming their model is true if they don't positively prove their model is true, which science is not capable of doing. So to recap, no empirical data, even in principle, could change his mind. There is no conceivable evidence that could convince him of a natural view of evolution, or falsify his model of design. No naturalistic theory will ever convince him, no matter how successful it is, unless it does more than make accurate predictions, explain all the data we observe, make the fewest assumptions, avoid contradicting other knowledge we have a high credence in, and fail to be proven wrong, which is outside the bounds of science. 
Does his model that he's proposing even begin to meet these standards? No, of course not. He's only this much of a skeptic when it comes to Darwinism. If he were consistent in this regard, he would have to throw out a lot more than evolutionary biology. For Behe, there are higher standards for ideas he doesn't like, and lower standards for ones he does. Reading Michael Behe over the past month has been challenging, in part because his thinking and writing is extremely muddled. He seems to contradict himself a lot, and flip-flops depending on whatever is most convenient for him at the moment. He also accuses his opponents of doing things he clearly does, like assume his conclusion, offer vague explanations, and make unfalsifiable claims. We need to clear something up here. Can natural, unguided processes only lead to loss of function mutations, or is it rather the tendency of natural processes? Does Behe mean to claim that all genetic gains of function that have occurred are from the intelligent designer, or that only some of them are? It's not clear which one he actually believes, so let's cover both options. Option 1. Natural processes aren't up to the task of generating new function, ever. All genetic gains of function are from the intelligent designer. To quote Behe, It never ceases to amaze me that Darwinists are unable to separate the question of what happened from the question of how it happened. Okay, flightless dinosaurs had feathers and birds can now fly. And he's referring to an example of exaptation there. So what exactly is the evidence that it happened by a Darwinian process? What is the evidence that a Darwinian process could even, say, differentiate owls and crows from a common ancestor? Unintelligent processes aren't remotely up to those tasks. End quote. So, consistently holding to option one would mean that Jesus Christ himself was wandering invisibly around the labs at MSU and playing with E. coli. If we set aside for the moment the strangeness of what's being offered here, the first problem with this option is that it's completely unfalsifiable. It's compatible with all possible observations. If I show you a genetic gain of function, you can just say, ah oh, yes, that must have been God just like I could see the motion of the earth and say it must have been the angel. And if I give you any naturalistic account, you can just accuse me of begging the question. Moreover, there is no scientific test for design. It entirely comes down to your intuition. If I were to show you a gain of function in E. coli at Michigan State University, you can just plug your ears and deny that it exists as a counterexample, as B. he seems to be doing when he dismisses it as a sideshow. Or you can bite the bullet and accept that God must have done it since unintelligent processes aren't supposed to be up for such tasks. Let's say I gave you numerous examples in nature, like trichromatic vision in primates and antifreeze proteins in the blood of arctic fish. You could just say, ah oh, yes, God must have done that. Why? Because you've already decided that any adaptive gain in function must be from the intelligent designer. If I give you examples, you can just assert that I've failed to separate the what from the how. If I then give you an explanation that could at least in principle explain the examples, you can dismiss that explanation as a just-so story because I haven't logically proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's the right explanation. This is another area in which Behe is constantly contradicting himself. Do Darwinists have an explanation that could, at least in principle, explain what we observe? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. So now let's take option two, which seems more reasonable at face value. It's not that natural processes can only degrade genes, it's just the tendency of random mutation and other natural processes to degrade genes. This means that only some fraction of the gain-of-function mutations are from the intelligent designer, 
Some are from natural processes, some are from the designer. The first question is why natural processes couldn't account for all the adaptive gains if they can account for some of them. If he's agreeing that Darwinists have an explanation for some adaptive gains of function, which he sometimes does and sometimes does not, is there any particular reason he's looking at other adaptive gains of function and claiming there's no way unintelligent processes could have produced them? He has two reasons, as far as I can tell, for why natural processes cannot explain all adaptive gains of function. One, because most mutations don't add new function, which doesn't matter at all and betrays his misunderstanding of natural selection. The other reason is that some of these structures are irreducibly complex, according to his intuitive powers. This also serves as the test for distinguishing godly from ungodly mutations. After all, it's natural to ask, once we've accepted that some adaptive gains are from the designer and some are from natural processes, how be he can tell the difference? This is why I felt it was necessary to discuss irreducible complexity before discussing the book. The notion of irreducible complexity has been debunked about a thousand times, and Darwin even anticipated arguments like it in later editions of The Origin. Irreducible complexity can't be an argument in favor of God's intervention, and it can't be the criterion for distinguishing mutations from the designer and mutations from purely natural processes. Remember Behe's underlying circular reasoning? We know a system is irreducibly complex if it performs a function that relies on multiple interacting parts that are purposefully arranged. Since there is no scientific test for purposeful, and it begs the design question to assert that these are purposeful arrangements, since purpose can only come from a mind with an intention, Behe claims that if the parts are, quote, ordered to perform some function, they must be purposeful. But natural selection can do this too, that is, order parts to perform function, and even Behe admits it like in the case of antifreeze proteins in the blood of arctic fish, which some creationists have mistakenly claimed to be irreducibly complex, even against what Behe thinks. We need some way to distinguish between parts ordered to perform a function that were produced by natural selection and those that were created by a designer. How do we distinguish? Well, the ones that are irreducibly complex couldn't have been produced by natural selection. Irreducible complexity, purpose, function, irreducible complexity, and around and around we go. As I've tried to make clear, Behe doesn't reject evolution so much as he rejects that anything other than magic could have caused evolution. Sure, evolution occurred, but was it driven by natural processes, like selection? He accepts that evolution occurred, but unintelligent processes aren't up to the task. What brings him to this conclusion? Really, it comes down to his intuition when he's looking at something complex. It certainly isn't because there aren't plausible theoretical accounts of how it could happen, as he sometimes admits. Behe concedes that naturalists have an explanation for how these things could have happened, but he calls them just-so stories. Behe, on the other hand, is not at all providing a just-so story when he looks at something complicated, throws up his hands, and says God must have done it. Nor is he a creationist, so don't call him that. To quote Lentz, Behe asserts that new function can only arise through purposeful design of new genetic information, a claim that cannot be tested. By contrast, Modern evolutionary theory provides a coherent set of processes, mutation, recombination, drift, and selection, that can be observed in the laboratory and modeled mathematically, and are consistent with the fossil record and comparative genomics. End quote. Biologists are not imagining up baseless narratives that can't be tested. They're making falsifiable predictions based on theory that's based on observation that they then go out and test. In other words, science. 
which is not something Behe seems very interested in doing. If he wants to incessantly claim that these coherent, testable, and empirically supported models are vague, unverifiable narratives that make unwarranted assumptions, if he's so troubled by these things, it would be nice to hear why his explanation of it was a miracle is less vague and less of a just-so story than duplication, mutation, recombination, drift, acceptation, and so on and so forth. I'm not holding my breath. Michael Behe claims that most mutations cause a loss or modification of function, rather than a gain. This claim can be questioned on the ground that he's scaling up some experimental evolution to all of evolution in nature. But the bigger issue here is his assertion that because we know most mutations are loss or modification of function, evolution will come to a halt without a designer. That evolution would come to a halt does not follow. It's based on a misunderstanding of natural selection. Even if most mutations don't add function, that doesn't mean new function cannot arise. Behe either misunderstands or underestimates natural selection. Gain-of-function mutations don't need to happen the majority of the time in order to cause major evolutionary change, any more than adaptive mutations need to happen more frequently than maladaptive mutations to proliferate. As I mentioned earlier, how consequential something is and how common it is are two different questions. And even if Behe managed to establish that Darwinism could not, even in principle, explain all that we observe, the design inference would not be justified by that fact alone. It does not follow that the solution to his imagined problem could only be an intelligent designer. And historically, that explanation doesn't have a great track record. As Nathan Lentz wrote in his review for Science, Darwin devolves fails to challenge modern evolutionary science because, once again, Behe does not fully engage with it. He misrepresents theory and avoids evidence that challenges him. End quote. I also have to mention that Jerry Coyne actually predicted Darwin devolves. Remember Behe's paper from 2010 that the book is based on? Criticizing that paper shortly after it came out, Coyne said, quote, When Behe produces a paper like this, it's hard to resist imputing a motivation for the work. After all, the man has a long history of promoting ID. I believe, and I think that time will prove me right that his intention is to show that evolution cannot provide new structures or new information, for example genes, but can only either tinker with ones already present or degrade them. Thus, to explain the evolution of truly new genetic information, one must invoke the intervention of an intelligent designer. End quote. So that was Jerry Coyne, almost a decade ago, exactly predicting what Behe did in fact do. So props to Jerry Coyne for that prediction. I originally wanted to close on an affirmation of naturalism, which, according to Sean Carroll, is the basic lesson we've learned from the past few centuries of modern science. However, I covered most of what I would say about naturalism a few podcasts ago in episode 49. Instead, I wanted to change the subject a little bit and turn to the creationist fixation on the randomness involved in Darwinism, which they seem to ascribe metaphysical significance to. They make the mistake of thinking that if any randomness whatsoever is involved in the evolutionary process, this means the whole process is random, everything is an accident, also we live in a purposeless cosmos and should probably kill ourselves. And this is of course absurd, both in the understanding of evolution 
and in the hysterical extrapolations. Randomness does play a role in evolution and the history of life on Earth, but evolution by natural selection is not a random process. Arising according to laws of nature is not at all the same thing as totally random accident. Mutations are seemingly random. Variation may be random, but natural selection is definitely not random. The randomness that seems to be involved in mutation and creating variation, or the randomness involved in historical contingencies, shouldn't cause us to lose any sleep. Randomness in evolution is no more metaphysically significant than randomness in weather systems. Creationists seem to think that if it's not conscious design all the way down, then there can never be purpose or meaning or morality. I would reply that purpose can emerge. In order to be real, it doesn't have to exist there at the fundamental levels of reality. Tables and chairs are real, even though they don't exist at the fundamental levels of reality. And the same goes for economics and comedy and morality and most things, actually. Most things don't exist at the very beginning, or the most fundamental level, and they are nonetheless real. Just because there was no plan that led to you being here doesn't mean your life is meaningless, or morality isn't real. Evolution by natural selection does not force one to that conclusion. Evolution also happens to be true, so it wouldn't matter if it did imply your life was meaningless. Being an evolved ape and living in a naturalistic universe need not be a source of agony unless we make it so. Our situation simply doesn't warrant the distress creationists seem to think it would. And again, this has no bearing on whether or not it's true. There are, of course, pros and cons to any worldview. I'd rather risk accepting the truth about our origins than tell what I foolishly believe to be a noble lie about God-given purpose and design, which creationists like Ken Ham have admitted partially motivates their resistance to evolution. William Jennings Bryan, prosecutor in the famous Scopes Monkey Trial, explicitly and at length argued that acceptance of evolution would destroy morality, especially for the youth, and that studying evolution, quote, corrupts the moral nature of those who become obsessed with it. So in case you thought this was all just a non-sequitur, creationists really do worry about the effect evolution will have on us, which partially motivates their denial of it. But I refuse to accept that to believe in religion is to live a life full of happiness and purpose, and we're obligated to be gloomy about a naturalistic view of life. Life is no less beautiful in a naturalistic universe. After an admittedly rough transition, my life has improved without religion, and my appreciation for the time I have here has only increased. It's amazing to contemplate the fact that we're a part of nature, not separate from it. Many have expressed similar feelings, from Carl Sagan to Christopher Hitchens, not just with regard to naturalism, but evolution specifically. There is grandeur in this view of life, as Darwin wrote. It is interesting to contemplate an entangled bank, clothed with many plants of many kinds, with birds singing on the bushes, with various insects flitting about, and with worms crawling through the damp earth, and to reflect that these elaborately constructed forms, so different from each other and dependent on each other in so complex a manner, have all been produced by laws acting around us. There is grandeur in this view of life, with its several powers having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful have been, and are being, evolved.
That's all I have for you today. If you'd be so kind, subscribe to the YouTube channel, Emerson Green, linked in the description. And a couple of you asked me about giving one-time donations instead of regular Patreon support, so I opened a Venmo account to make that easier, at Emerson Green Podcast on Venmo, if you're inclined to give that way, instead of on Patreon. And speaking of making the show possible, I'd like to thank all my beautiful patrons and of course my patron hall of fame, Jesta, Phil Stillwell, Richard Crossan, Nathan Grounds, and Pre-Nifty. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but you still want to put the evil in evolution, you can find me on Facebook, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.